Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Benkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News. And of course, I'm the editor of Agents of Change. It's so good to be back with you all. Happy fall, everyone. We've had quite a bit of snow here in the north, and it's definitely soup season, tea season, and it's indoor bicycling season for me, which is a bummer, but it's still a beautiful time to get outside. Before we get going today, I wanted to take a quick moment for a couple reminders. One, we have an excellent newsletter, if you didn't know that. If you're interested in the Agents of Change happenings from both current and senior fellows, sign up for our monthly newsletter, where we will keep you posted on cutting-edge science, community work, op-eds, new positions, and all kinds of fun stuff. You can sign up for that at Agents of Change in EJ.org and just scroll to the bottom of the page. And my second reminder is just take care of yourself today. Take time for you, your wellness, your sanity, whatever that looks like for you. Maybe it's getting out in the woods like me or maybe it's a guilty pleasure reality TV show. Just give yourself a break. We all deserve it. Today's guest is Hannah Seo, a reporting fellow at the New York Times Well Desk. Hannah was an assistant editor at Agents of Change before her move to the Times, and she has covered health, wellness, science, and environmental justice for a whole bunch of outlets. She's also a published poet, which we will talk about. Hannah talks about her international upbringing, incorporating a justice lens into her science reporting, what it's like working with scientists on narrative stories, and what makes her optimistic about the future of journalism. Enjoy! All right. I am super happy to be joined by Hannah Seo. Hannah, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm so happy to be talking to you. So happy to be talking and seeing you. Of course, you were with us at Agents of Change, and it's just so nice to see you again and have you back. And I'm really excited to hear about what you've been working on. So as you probably know, I like to start way at the beginning, and I happen to know that you had this very, a truly international upbringing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the different parts of the world you've lived and how you think it may have shaped you and your career. Yeah, it's been, um, there definitely have been a lot of places um, in the roster of, of my life. Um, <laughs> I, so I was born in Vancouver, Canada, um, moved to the Middle East, to Qatar when I was four, um, which is a little tiny little peninsula country um, by Dubai. Um, I lived there for 14 and a half years, left when I was 18 to go to Montreal for university. Then I went to Korea for a gap year, traveled around for a bit, landed in New York City. Um, it's for sure every single place has been influential to my life, um, without a doubt. I think the biggest value is that every place has shown me that there are so many ways to live. And I think that's something that a lot of people forget especially people who haven't you know, traveled very much, is like they think that the way that they live is the only way they can live or the only, only way people should live. Um, and just growing up so internationally, you really see that there is really one, no one answer to how people go through life or how people react to circumstances. Oh, I really like that. Uh, my wife and I are always uh, looking at the Scandinavian countries and how they live and saying, why do they seem to have it figured out? <laughs> <with> <laughs> why can they live that way with health care and, and everybody has a good paying job? Um, but that's really interesting. And how about the weather? I mean, I have to imagine Qatar is super hot and then Canada is super not. 
One of the fun facts about me that I like to share is that the hottest temperature I ever experienced in my life, and I don't do Fahrenheit as I'm Canadian, so you'll just have to bear with me and my Celsius. <laughs> but the hottest temperature I ever experienced in Qatar was 56 degrees Celsius. And the coldest temperature I ever experienced in Montreal was negative 45 degrees Celsius. Oh, my goodness. So I have experienced a more than 100 degrees Celsius range of temperatures in my life. <laughs> and neither one of those two are livable. No human should really be at, on either ends of those on that spectrum. <laughs> so you, as you said, you've been in New York City now for a while, uh, Brooklyn. Do you feel like a New Yorker at this point? Ooh, um, I would say short answer, no. I think... Um, I mean, I feel very familiar. I have my places that I like to go to. Um, I do feel quite comfortable, but I think my default state is one of unbelonging. And so to not be a New Yorker kind of feels like the right status. A default state of unbelonging. I like that. So you went to uh, NYU's Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program, just such an excellent program that I've had the good fortune of working with folks like you from and everybody that goes through there is such a such an excellent writer and reporter. Um, but it's very science heavy, from what I understand. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but from what I understand, it's a lot of a lot of science reporting. So I'm wondering where along the way you started incorporating uh, environmental justice and thinking more about these kind of non science uh, narratives. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question, and I feel like I started incorporating justice-related themes without really even noticing, just because I have had this international upbringing. Um, and I, um, I just, I naturally gravitated towards stories that involved um, different communities that are maybe not talked about as often, or um, people of different, including different people of um, people of different ethnicities or sexualities in my reporting process. Just as a way, it just felt natural to me because of um, just, I guess, just because of my upbringing, and it didn't really occur to me that I was doing kind of justice-related reporting until. Um, until afterwards and looking back and seeing uh, my stories being called justice related stories. And then, um, and I guess I just ran with it. I, I yeah, I like it. <laughs> what do you like about it? I like that, um, as, as a reporter, as someone in media, I think you have a lot of, um, you do hold a lot of power in just the fact that, um, people's attention is such a valuable resource and people have limited attention. And so being able to direct even just a modicum of that attention to people who don't normally get attention, I think is like a really valuable thing that we can do. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's just incredibly well put. Um, as you know, I've been asking everybody uh, a defining moment that shaped your identity up to this point. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I knew this question was coming and I was thinking about it and um, I think I guess I have two that um, that are really defining in maybe different ways or maybe related ways, I, I guess. Um, one is that in my freshman year of university, I, uh, I stopped believing in God. <laughs> so that was the pretty defining moment in my, in my life. Um, I think it really um, helped shape my trajectory of uh, who I am and what I care about in the sense that I, um, when you realize that time on earth is a finite resource, you tend to treat it with more care. And I think I started living more deliberately after I stopped believing in God. Um, and then the second event would be when I decided to go to journalism school. Um, I decided to apply to journalism school despite not having any experience in journalism. And that was a really um, 
kind of scary transition, um, but felt instinctively, it felt right to me. And um, even though at the time that decision didn't feel so weighty, I think in hindsight, that feels like a very important move that I made. Well, that's very cool. I appreciate you sharing uh, you sharing that. So now you are at the well desk at the New York Times. So I have two questions. Um, one is if you can just tell us what the well desk is. I think maybe it's a little bit apparent than, through the name, but there's so many different aspects of the New York Times. And second, uh, it's obviously the biggest paper in the world. Um, what can you tell us about your experience there so far? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Well Desk is basically how I would explain it is if the science section met the style section. Um, it's mostly uh, the Well coverage mostly uh, involves mental and physical health and wellness, as well as some like relationships and social science stuff. And uh, yeah, being at uh, the Times is really surreal for sure. It's such a behemoth of an institution, and I think that you don't really realize how many moving parts there are until you're kind of in the machine and you're just seeing just like how much copy, like the volume of copy that is moved every day and and the rush to get things to print. And it's been um, it's been a learning curve for sure. And it's been a revelatory experience thus far. Um, and I'm excited to, to continue my time there. So you are at the Well Desk and you've also obviously reported on the environment and health and the intersection of all of these things. So I was just wondering, what are some of the environmental health or wellness topics that are on your radar that you think people should be paying more attention to, but maybe aren't? Yeah, this is a, a tough question. Um, and it's also kind of tricky to answer because no matter what you say, like there's always somebody who has been thinking about this and feels <laughs> like by saying that nobody's talking about this, they feel a little slighted. But <laughs> um, I think something that more people could be paying attention to, I think especially from like a health and like wellness perspective that I think that people kind of neglect is just how big a role um, structural things like the economy play in how our health and well-being is influenced and how we approach our own health and well-being. Um, a lot of wellness reporting is kind of geared towards like you are doing something wrong, which is why you are not well. Here is a solution in the form of like a product or a practice or some sort of consumption that you can do in order to make your life better. And I think that you know, some of the, the some of those pieces of advice might be helpful, but it doesn't get at the root of the problem, which is that there are these big structural forces at play that kind of prevent certain demographics from being well and from maintaining the best health that they can. And I would really like to see more reporting and more attention uh, directed to those issues. And do you think that's because of the complexity and the difficulty in reporting and talking and, and thinking about big things as opposed to simple things. Yeah. And I also think it's maybe a little unsatisfying um, sometimes to read a story and be like, well, it's out of my hands, you know? And I think sometimes by offering someone a solution um, that feels a little bit smaller and a little bit more um, manageable, it kind of is comforting in a way for both the writer and the reader, um, but also is not entirely truthful, um, or at least doesn't capture the entirety of the situation. So for the larger structural issues, um, economic inequality, structural racism, I assume these are some of the things you're referring to. Um, is there room for solutions reporting? I know when we start a story at EHN, we try to think about, uh, you know, how can we have impact with this? And it almost always ends with, 
you know, legislation change <laughs> or, or something like that, which is such a lofty goal. And I'm wondering if it's possible to have solutions reporting if you are incorporating these kind of larger, um, zooming out and focusing on some of the larger issues. Yeah, I, I guess um, I think there is room for solutions reporting and I, I don't have all the answers, but I do think that the first step is directing attention, like I mentioned, with like marginalized communities. I think one of the first things is to just like make sure people direct their gaze towards places where um, things can be better. And and I don't know, I guess I guess there's also an element to of as reporters, especially on like health or environmental beats, you don't always have the expertise to kind of report on um, things like political change or legislation. And so it might take like interdisciplinary collaboration um, in order to bring that those sort of uh, reporting projects to light. For sure, for sure. And so you, uh, of course, you were an assistant editor at our Agents of Change program and did some excellent work here. And you worked directly with fellows on shaping their essays. Um, Given this work, I, I was wondering if you have some tips or just general advice you'd, you'd give to scientists who want to write or communicate to a broader audience, especially in light of that, the last question that we had, uh, trying to connect these issues, which a lot of these fellows were trying to do. Um, what advice or, or tips would you have? Mm. I think that the most common uh, comment I had for people when I was editing and reviewing these essays was um, to always keep in mind what the purpose is of the piece that you're writing. Um, I think sometimes people, especially if they have an academic background, they're just so um, in the zone with their expertise and their knowledge that sometimes they might lose sight of what the what the purpose is or what the intended effect they want out of the essay that they publish. And so if your essay is about um, if your essay is about bringing to light some sort of uh, unreported on or uh, lesser known issue in a smaller community, then really whatever expertise you have and whatever information you share should be in service of elucidating that issue. You're not sharing your knowledge for the sake of sharing your knowledge. You're sharing your knowledge for the purpose of, of giving someone clarity or shedding a light into a specific landscape. And so that's that's what I would I would say. Um, just always remember like why you're writing the thing you're writing, and whatever you share should be in service of that purpose. I know from talking to you and and following you online that you read a lot. You seem to follow a lot of different people. You read a lot of di- on a lot of different issues. Uh, I'm wondering, and you can be totally honest in light of working with agents of change. I mean, do you think having scientists communicate in this way a, a kind of personal narrative is is a is a good thing is that something that we should be doing uh to move the needle on uh injustice and i definitely think so absolutely i think that um you know people who go through the agents of change um, program so many of them have firsthand experience working with communities and um it's unfortunate about um that so much of media relies on things like credibility and you have to kind of prove that credibility. And I think that when academics have experience working with communities um, and then they share those experiences, the institutional backing does lend that credibility. And it's kind of a sad thing that we have to, sometimes people doubt community experiences and that we need to rely on these titles and these institutions to kind of um, verify 
quote unquote verify um, that these issues are happening. Um, but the fact that, but the fact is, is that 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 hoop those hoops do exist, and um, when academics use their experiences um, for the purpose of of shedding light on these issues, like that's for sure invaluable. And I didn't ask that as any kind of <laughs> promotion for the program. I, <laughs> I'm just genu- genuinely curious because uh, a lot of scientists are uncomfortable with that. A lot of journalists are uncomfortable with um, writing actively about issues, um, if, especially when it relates to injustice and um, things like that. So uh, I appreciate your perspective. And speaking of reading a lot of different people uh, and uh, in a lot of different spaces and genres, so you are a poet, which is so cool, and I've read some of your poetry, and some of it, uh, some of it I got and really stuck to me, and some of it, like most poetry, I felt like you were at PhD level and I was in kindergarten. <laughs> but um, when did you get into poetry? And pardon me if this is personal, but what is what is your process, and how does it differ from journalism? Oh, thanks for reading. <laughs> I uh, don't talk about it often because I find that it's like I, when you talk about um, your poetry practice to people, they either think it's very cool or they think it's like very cringy and they think like you're <laughs> on Tumblr or something and just like putting out like your emo thoughts or whatever. <laughs> um, I got into poetry in uh, in college. I um, just I, I was majoring in science and I felt very removed from any sort of creative practice and I needed an outlet to kind of let off some steam and kind of process my own emotions in a way that wasn't just talking to somebody. And so I um, started writing, I started joining different small literary magazines on campus. And uh, at first I had no intention of publishing, but then I kind of um, found communities online and kind of learned that publishing doesn't have to be super scary, especially if you, um, I take rejection very well (laughs) and, uh, I, one of my strong suits. And so if you take rejection well, and you're not afraid to just like send your words out into the ether, um, then it's, it's very doable. And I find it to be, um, a very emotionally fulfilling part of my life. Um, my process is kind of vague and it really depends on what is happening in my life. Um, sometimes I'll just be walking and I'll have like a turn of phrase kind of pop into my mind and I'll, I'll jot it down. Sometimes it's very like story or experience driven and I feel like I need to capture a moment in um, the poetic form and um, then I'll document that. Um, other times I just go through my notes and I see that I, some of my musings have follow a certain theme and then I'll try to kind of cobble together something from... Um, what scraps I have. And it's very, it's very unregulated and very haphazard, but yeah. (laughs) Probably very different than your journalism side of life, which is probably more structured at this point. Right. (laughs) I don't know the name of the poem and and I apologize if if this embarrasses you, but the one that got to me most was almost like a note to a boy in your class um, uh, talking about the different experiences you two had. I believe you're both uh, Asian, I think, was what I got from it. And, and uh, I just thought that was such... And I can't remember the name of the poem, but that one was like uh, brought tears to my eyes. It was such a strong, strong poem. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I believe the title for that one was uh, To the Taiwanese Boy in My Third Grade Class. Um, yeah, what was interesting is that um, this memory kind of resurfaced recently um, of this Asian boy who joined my school when I was uh, like about third grade, I think. Um, and... Uh, 
I had I grew up with very few Asians around, and in at the time when this other boy arrived, I was the only Asian I think in my grade. And uh, but the thing is, is that because obviously I'm Canadian, you know, English is my first language. Um, to me, like my Asianness wasn't so apparent, and I felt that when he entered into my class, he made my Asianness more apparent by the fact that he was so not Western. Uh, he spoke broken English, and um, you know, people kind of started associating us just by default, just because we were both Asian. And if people had a hard time understanding him, they would ask me what he said. And I, well, I was just so uncomfortable with that, that I, I think I was rather unfriendly to him in my young years. And I, and I felt really regretful of that. So that memory kind of resurfaced and that's, that's why I wrote the poem. Yeah. And you're kind of apologizing to him. And I understood it, but at the same time, it was like, oh, Hannah, you're in third grade. Go easy on yourself. <laughs> like, we've all, done, we've all done things in third grade that weren't so kind, but it's a, really beautiful, it's a really beautiful poem. And when you were talking about rejection, so I used to write uh, short stories and submit them to literary journals and got a couple, a couple published. But one of my rejections, I remember they accidentally copied me. And uh, it was the editors. And it said something along the lines of, I can't believe all the crazy shit we're getting this round. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, so that one hurt. I mean, the rest of them were just your normal. um, Thank you so much for applying. But that one, uh, maybe they maybe they copied me on purpose. You know, maybe it was just don't don't send us anything. I'm so sorry you had to see that. Oh, there are worse things. There are worse things in life. So do you notice any crossover or intersection in your, you know, your reporting, your health, environmental wellness reporting and your poetry? Or are they very separate? Um, I think for the most part, they are quite separate. But I do love incorporating scientific themes into some of my poems. I think there's some there's some language in the world of science that I find quite beautiful. And I love just like sticking in an odd, odd sciencey term or phrase uh, in a poem. I also think my poetry really helps my journalism um, when it comes to brevity, which is definitely something I could use more work on. Uh, <laughs> just like the economy of language is so important in poetry. And I think um, that practice kind of seeps into my, into my journalistic prose in a way that I think is quite valuable. Excellent. One of the first pieces of advice I ever got in J school was omit needless words. I think that can be attributed to a famous author or writer, but... Um, yeah, it's something I think we could all we could all learn from. So I wanted to talk to you, Hannah, a little bit about um, well diversity in journalism, but specifically you're part of Uproot, uh, which is a network. Uh, I think it's journalists of color for journalists of color. Um, for too long, journalism has kind of lacked in this diversity, and I was wondering if you could talk about Uproot, your involvement there, and any other movement on this front to bolster diversity in reporting and, and why it's so important. Yeah, I think um, when I initially. Um became a journalist. I didn't think about it too much. Um, But then I realized uh, when I joined Uproot and when I joined things like AJA, the Asian American Journalist Association, um, the value of these organizations. And I think I've been trying to distill down why I think they're so valuable. And besides just like emotional communal support, I think a big role that they play is that it's just a way to safely share information about your experiences and a way to kind of disseminate knowledge about the industry. Um, and like you said, when so many people in positions of power are have historically been like white and male, um, it's it's nice to have channels where you can just 
ask advice safely um, without like fear of retribution or fear of like looking unprofessional or, or unknowledgeable. Um, it's also so valuable just to share experiences because when you realize that other people are experiencing what you're experiencing or if other people are experiencing something way better or way worse, you know, just having all of that data is is really comforting um, just to kind of place yourself in the broader landscape of of journalists. And I think that I think that's really it's really great what uh, what these organizations and what these networks are doing to provide people with that space. That's great. I wasn't even thinking about that side of things. You know, I was thinking of from the side of kind of um, to news news production. Um, but the idea of kind of a support system is uh, that's really great. I can say as an editor, the the fact that these networks are springing up and um, NAHJ and uh, uh, National Association of Native American Journalists. Uh, as an editor, it's great to have pools of not only kind of um, you know ethnic and, and racial diversity. But geographic diversity, when I'm looking for somebody who is embedded in a community and knows that community, to have them go and do the reporting as opposed to, to pulling somebody to parachute in, um, it's been really great as an editor, too. So I, I'm really happy to, to, that all of these places exist. Um, so it's an interesting time to be in journalism, of course, mistrust, and uh, there's a lot of loss in the industry. But I, wanna, I always like to hear about people's optimism. Uh, what are you excited about? What are you optimistic about when it comes to reporting and journalism? Yeah, I think my optimism is um, related to the previous question. I think that the growing diversity in newsrooms is something to be optimistic about. I think that um, people are finding really innovative ways to tell stories and to um, share information uh, just beyond the fact of you know, of, of course, like we have cool infographics that are on new sites now. And so, but beyond things like that, it's like, you know, even, even, even people like uh, Taylor Lorenz, who's on TikTok, sharing her reporting on TikTok and um, just uh, the, the way that we disseminate information, I think is really, is in some ways democratizing, in some ways, a tricky mind, a field to navigate. But I think, I think I'm generally optimistic because um, the way that power and attention is directed, I think, is is generally headed in the right direction, even if right now it doesn't feel like it. Yeah, you have to take the long view, right? Um, there are certainly some negative aspects, but overall, if you take the long view, it does seem like um, we're on the right path. So I, I agree and I appreciate that. Um, so I have a few more questions to go, and it's just been so great to catch up with you and talk to you today. And uh, these are these are short these are short answers for me, so you can just get in and get out. And the first one is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Yeah, um, my mom told me when I was a teenager to be bold, and I think that's the best advice I've ever gotten. Even if, like at the time, I, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> the last concert I saw was blank. Um, a rock concert outdoors in Prospect Park. My favorite thing to cook is? I don't. <laughs> One place or thing to do in New York City that I love, but I don't go or do enough. Uh, roller skating. They still have roller roller skating rinks? Yeah, there's one in Prospect Park that I love to go to, uh, but I just like the timing with work. It's like it's hard to get to. 
I watched a documentary on roller roller rinks a few years ago, and I don't remember I don't remember the name of it, but it is fascinating the culture that sprung up around these. I believe Chicago was a really big place for them. Um, Michigan, you know, around Detroit, there were a whole bunch of them, and they all shut down over the last few decades, and people were crushed. It was this big cultural gathering space for adults, too. I, I had no idea. So cool. Wow, I've never really dug into the history of roller skating, but now I really want to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> I will have to get you the name. And Hannah, uh, last question. What is the last book you read for fun? Uh, I do read a lot. Um, I try to read 30 books a year. Um, I don't know if I'm going to hit that this year, but, uh, the last book I read was actually, I reread, uh, how to do nothing by Jenny O'Dell. And, um, this book is, is amazing. Probably one of the best books I've ever read maybe. Um, but it's not really about how to do nothing. The subtitle of the book I think is more apt. It's, um, resisting the attention economy. And basically it's about how attention is one of the last resources that we as individuals have full autonomy over and, um, so much of when we get when we face like dread or despair about the world around us, um, a lot of the times we can have the instinct to like pull ourselves apart from the world and kind of, you know, become a hermit in a cabin in the woods or um, just like detach completely or like stop caring. And she says that the answer to fixing uh, the societies that we live in is not to separate ourselves, but to kind of exist in our existing systems and but also standing apart and kind of operating in this third space where you're aware of what's happening but also actively trying to resist the flow of where people are trying to move you towards and I'm not doing a great job of summarizing this but it is very very good and I'm I've been recommending this book to everyone I can at every opportunity awesome you know I've seen that at the local library and I keep thinking about getting it and now I will that sounds sounds like a great read for the times we're in. Yes, absolutely. Well, Hannah, this has been great. I uh, You started as an intern at EHN, and now I am just a fan of your work, and you're one of my favorite reporters. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, that's so kind of you. I've enjoyed every moment of this. All right, that's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Hannah. I am so excited to continue watching her career unfold. For more of her work, follow her on Twitter at AHannahCO. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org, and while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and listen to this and all past episodes. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeinej.org. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join me next time when I speak to Ashley James, a fellow in the U.S. EPA Office of Children's Environmental Protection and a reporter focusing on children's health and toxic exposures. Have a great week, folks. Music